Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe.
Hey, Mr. Ryan. Yes. How is beautiful downtown Kennebuckport? Well, I couldn't tell you because I'm in beautiful downtown Wells with a D, not Wells with two S's. Yeah, my both my I'm grandchildren went to both my grandchildren went to camp in Maine. We used to stop at Kennebuckport to get a lobster roll on the way home. No, I don't doubt it. Yeah, no, well, that's uh, that's uh, yeah. that's on the way, but I'm far far northern northern west of that. Stand by, we're getting ready to go. Yep, ready. Hi everybody, welcome to Howard David Live. We get going on a Wednesday with one of the great columnists from American journalism. He is Bob Ryan, uh, formerly with the Boston Globe for, what Bob, like 40 years? More? 44 with the Globe. Officially retired 10 years ago, but I still am active in various ways. Uh, you're still doing some work at ESPN, too, aren't you? Yes. Uh, I'm around the horn uh, on the other week basis. In fact, I will be on this coming Friday. The Celtics got as far as the NBA Finals. They run up against Steph Curry and his band of sharpshooting, outstanding players. It's a great team, no doubt about it. But would you say that the Celtics had... A successful season, a very successful season, or neither? Very successful. Um, ultimately, not the totally uh, satisfying. You didn't get the final prize. But when you consider, now there's two ways of looking at this. There's the professional way and there's the personal way. Uh, I'll, I'll start with the professional way. The professional way is that they had an excellent opportunity, and they will regret it uh, when they examine the, the ways that you know they were overcome uh, and things that they did to themselves, the turnovers, uh, that had a chance to win the championship. They had a championship in their grasp, and they didn't get it. However, the, the personal, the fan part that I am much more concerned about uh, is that in the middle of January, this team was three games under 500. Right. And, and, and Dismal coming off a, a horrifying loss to the Knicks, uh, having blown a 25-point lead. And from that point on, they were the most successful team in the league. I won't say the best because we find out who the best team was. But the most successful in terms of wins and losses, no team fared better from that point in the season until the end of the finals than the Boston Celtics. And, and, and both offensive and defensive metrics 
they were they were one in defense and almost everything, and they were high up in offense. It was a spectacular run. It was gratifying. It was fun. Uh, it included some tremendous games. Uh, they set t- franchise records for 40-point victories, uh, for example, three of them. Uh, they did all kinds of wonderful things for those three months. They felt a bit short, and, and it was disappointing. And But how can any reasonable person not say it was a successful season? Of course it was. Bob, uh, is it fair to say that the Miami series, because of the uh, the style that was played by both teams, both tough defensive teams, you think that took something out of the Celtics getting to the final? No, I, I don't want to dwell, I go there necessarily. It might have done. They still had a, you know, they had a chance. I mean, they they, they had a chance. They were up two to one coming home, and um, uh, I mean, with another game at home, and. And they had a good shot. I'm not going to go there necessarily. It's not the men, particularly because the, the core group is, is young. You know, I mean, uh, the core group, which is this uh, Smart, Tatum, and Brown, uh, are 27, 24, uh, 20, uh, Mark Brown and Tatum in that order, are 27, 25, and 24 years of age. Uh, and, and, and Robert Williams is, is, is 21, whatever. So I'm not going to go there. But they, they, uh, that, that, I'm not, that, to me, that's a very minor reason. Ime Udoka, tremendous rookie coach. Um, I'll go back to their first series with the Nets when they when they swept them in four. And I, I don't think there's any doubt in my mind, anyway, that Udoka completely outcoached Steve Nash. Would you agree? Yeah, I, I did. I'm always a little bit. I've gone that route at times, definitely. Uh, and I, I don't think it was overwhelmingly awful. But I mean, he had a better team. He had more going for him. I mean. The, the Nets really had issues and, and uh, physical issues, and and uh, they, they, you know, um, the Celtics should have won that series, and they did. I, I don't think any of us anticipated it would be a sweep, particularly not when the first game was won literally in the final second. Right. And, and, and you thought, oh boy, this is going to be a good series. Well, no, the Celtics told, uh, were, were dominant after that. So, uh, uh, but he did outcoach him. Yes, I wouldn't. You know, I don't want to go too exaggerated with it because uh, I have great respect for for. Uh, Mr. Nash, but but uh, Amy Doka was a the great hire by Brad Stevens. Uh, I was talking to my old partner Cedric Maxwell often during the season, and he kept praising Udoka, saying that this guy, you know, this is when, as you mentioned, when they started out so slowly, uh, and then everything started to kick into high gear. Uh, Marcus Smart has been given a lot of credit for kind of being the engine uh, behind. Uh, and basically, he got into Tatum and into Brown, and basically said, "Look, you guys, you, you guys got to move the ball around a little bit." And I, I don't know the content of the conversation because I'm not in the locker room. But by the same token, Smart is getting an awful lot of credit, and I think he deserves it. He does. Um, he, he he did call out his teammate, and, and uh, they they did not take it the wrong way. They took it the right way, and and, and they did make a, an advance in, in, in uh, their vision of the game. I, I would say. Uh, and, and he himself, though, needed to clean up some stuff. And, and from the beginning, at this point that we're talking about, when they started to play uh, excellent ball, uh, he acted more like a conventional point guard than he had at any point in his previous career. Um, and he uh, really isn't a natural point guard. And, and, uh, but he was in thrust in, in that role by, by default, frankly, uh, on this team. And um, uh, he, he had an excellent run. Uh, if you had told anyone, in the beginning of January, that he would have a game he would take three shots from the floor and have 13 assists, you would have laughed. Well, he did have such a game. And, 
and he did have many games uh, where he was a, a true uh, acted as a true point guard, and that was a big, uh, big one of the reasons why they were so, so successful. But he is a leader. He is a forceful uh, person. Uh, they've got some really highly intelligent and, 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 and strong personalities on that team. Uh, Jalen Brown being another one, and, and uh, young Grant Williams, who's going to be, well, his future lies outside of basketball. I can promise you that when he's done. Well, but he's going he's gonna to inherit a leadership role as well. You're saying a future outside of basketball. What do you mean? I mean, he's, he's, he's going to be a politician. He's going to be a businessman, a leader of, of people. Uh, he's a brilliant young man. He's a renaissance man. He plays six instruments. Uh, he, he, he just has a grasp of a worldview. I mean, this is a, this is a guy who's a, a, a Vanderbilt and should be very proud of what they turned out with Grant Williams. He's just, I just don't see him hanging around jocks the rest of his life. You know what I mean? Yeah. Just don't. He's Bob Ryan, the uh, outstanding award-winning uh, sports writer, was with the Boston Globe for 44 years. National Sports Writer of the Year four times. Got the Kurt Gowdy Award, which is given by the Basketball Hall of Fame. Uh, I mean, a lot of honors. And I look at the Boston Globe. Uh, I always remember when I got the Celtic job, and, and I'm looking through the Globe like weeks before we started, and I'm looking at Bob Ryan, Will McDonough, Peter Gammons, Dan Shaughnessy, Leslie Visser worked there. Jackie McMullen worked there. I mean, that that's quite a distinguished group of writers. Lee Montville uh, was a, 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 truly a unique uh, column uh, style. Uh, yes, it was an honor to be in, involved in, in that team. It was like playing for the vintage Yankees or Celtics or Canadians. And uh, we, 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 we're in the discussion is the greatest section of all time. I'm not claiming it unilaterally. I have great respect for some others, that, but uh, you know, there weren't anybody better than us, and, uh, and it was an honor to be a part of the whole thing. Uh, and, and at one point, just as an example, at one point in time, uh, the people who were most associated with the four major teams, the Beats, uh, uh, each of us and myself, Will McDonough in football, Fran Rosa in hockey, and, and Peter Gammons in baseball, we all wound up uh, in their respective writers' wings, halls of fame. And I don't think any other paper has ever been able to make that statement, and surely no one ever will in the future. Let me ask you this. Uh, duly noted, you're, you've been a Celtic fan along with working in Boston. Uh, did your love for the Celtics ever influence your writing in any way? Oh, you know, I'm, a, I'm no secret. Uh, unlike a lot of writers who make a big boast about their, their uh, uh, impartiality and objectivity, quote-unquote, uh, I'm a fan first. I'm, that's, what, that's why I'm a sports writer. I'm, I'm, I'm a fan. Uh, and then you have to know how to uh, watch the, a game and then take off your fan hat and put on your journalistic hat and report the game. And, and, and now you're going to report it with a point of view. I uh, try to you know, think that I'm writing for a, a Boston audience reflecting often the point of view. So the trials and tribulations, the ups and downs, the, uh, you know, trying to, uh, you know, convey the hurts when things went bad, convey the joy when things went well. Uh, I, I, that's part of my writing. Other people were comfortable uh, with a much more, uh, you know, uh, I, I don't even want to, you know, just ordinary approach, uh, impartial approach, but I never made any secret about it. But the thing is, it's, the first thing is a great uh, myth about the whole idea of, of objectivity there is that's not what you strive for you strive for fairness 
uh, everything is subjective. Uh, every word you use is a choice. Every, every decision you make about what you're going to talk about in, in this particular game is a choice. So your, uh, your, uh, your, your goal is fairness and dealing with that objectivity, subjectivity. That's, that's irrelevant. He's Bob Ryan, formerly the Boston Globe for 44 years. You mentioned we've talked about your uh, Celtic fan base and so on. And uh, my, I remember my first year broadcasting the NBA. I was with the New Jersey Nets and our first trip up to Boston, the old Boston Garden. And as you remember, uh, Johnny Most, who was the longtime voice of the Celtics, sat way up top. And our broadcast position was just down the line. So I went up to Johnny and introduced myself to him before the game. And I said, I understand that Mikhail's got a sore ankle. Is he going to play tonight? And Johnny would say, I don't know. I said, I understand that Larry Bird's got the sore wrist. Is he going to play tonight? I don't know. Let me tell you something, babe. When they show up, they show up. <laughs> and, it, and it cracked me up because, look, I knew. Johnny was notorious for his disinterest in preparation. Right. <laughs> he, he, uh, and, and in the latter stages of his career, that task fell on Glenn Ordway, who, who basically nursemaided Johnny through the last 10 years of his career after he had a stroke and, and, and it was, you know, physically impaired, but mentally fine. And, uh, and Johnny had no interest in preparation. Uh, he, the game start, they, it's his, his night started when they threw the ball up and he broadcast a basketball game. Right. And he wasn't interested in, 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 in anything other than broadcasting the basketball game. Well, it, it then, uh, you know, it, it extended. I mean, he was unashamed at home. There's no question about that. But it continued when Tommy Heinsohn broadcast, because I remember in broadcasting the Celtics games with Cedric, and Heinsohn was working the games at that time with Bob Cousy. And, I mean, after games, we'd be on the team bus, and my version and Max's version of the game was considerably different than Tommy's, because, as you well know, Johnny Most... Never saw a foul the Celtics committed, and Tommy probably felt the same way, right? Tommy bled green and white, and he made no secret of it. He was Mr. Celtic, if ever there was one, uh, <clears throat> serving the Celtics as a player, as a coach, and as a broadcaster, uh, you know, from 1956 until he passed away last year, uh, 2020. And, and uh, you're absolutely right. The, Mike Gorman, who was who, who Johnny's you know, with play-by-play, ran for Tommy on, for 30 years, uh, loves to tell the story about the very first night they worked. And it basically the gist of the story is that Mike had all these notes and color-coded this and that, and Tommy said, what's all that? And and, 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 and he said, well, that's my purpose, my notes. And, nah. and Tommy just kind of tossed them away and, and didn't pull them. And, and said, nah, you don't need all that. And, you know, I don't, I don't need any of that either. And uh, that's the way he, so he was very much, he and, he and Johnny were uh, had the same feeling. Just go start the game, and I'll tell you about it. I don't need all of this other stuff. Well, the fans obviously gravitated to that, right? Yep. Oh, yeah. They, they, we later, Tommy, you know, we, absolutely. They, Tommy was one of them. They just happened to have, uh, you know, the cachet of being a Hall of Famer and, and as a player and a coach. But he was a, he was a Celtic diehard, absolutely. Uh, the, the, uh, you know, that he was uh, – he never – the referees were, were uh, bad people. And, and the other thing is, was Tommy was – Running, all he thought the only way, the best way to play basketball was was <clears throat> push the ball, push fast. But he he was a proponent of that, and he was always on them for, for not picking up the pace. But he was a Celtic fan, absolutely, positively, made no secret about that. How would you describe your relationship with Tommy? Uh, oh, at the end, it was fine. We had a we had a falling out 
when I was on the beat in uh, the later stages in like 1974 to 76, and um, my version of, of things and which was reflected uh, reflected very heavily by my relationship with the players, which was very strong. Sometimes deviated from his, and um, and uh, we uh, uh, had a you know uh, we weren't been talking at the end of the finals in 1976. But uh, two years later, we were at a social gathering, and, and I went up to him and said, hey, Tommy, would it spoil your evening if I said hello? And he said, now. And we were we remained quite friendly and right to the end. So it was an excellent relationship. I, I, Tommy was a source for stories, uh, interviews and stuff for me. And, and, um, and, and I, uh, so we, we, we had no trouble. But yeah, working in that capacity, uh, we did run afoul. Now, he, I think he felt that I was betrayed, I had betrayed him because when I started out as a 23-year-old kid in 1969, and that year he was a rookie coach, I was a rookie writer, and we kind of, need, he needed, you know, I, he, I needed him to teach me the NBA. I was a college-oriented person, and I needed to get the wise and wherefores and the nuances of the NBA down, and Tommy was very willing to share. Uh, and I think he recognized that it's a good idea to have a good relationship with the person representing the most important sports entity in New England, which was the Boston Globe. Television had, had no role then. Radio had no role. It was all about newspapers, and we were the primary paper. And uh, and so, uh, but after a few years, uh, and I was developing my own thoughts based a lot on listening to players who didn't exactly always agree with him, uh, we had a problem. But once that was over and I was done off the beat, and, and um, and we patched it up and we were fine. Uh, I, when I got the, the job to broadcast the Celtics, uh, I had to go by the uh, the eye test of Rick Pitino. He had to sign off. So the general manager of WEI said, we're going to go meet with uh, Rick Pitino, and he's either going to okay you or he's not. <laughs> but we ha- he, he has that right. So I didn't know if he had remembered. I had several conversations with him when he was with the Knicks. But we walk into his apartment. He takes one look at me and he goes, I know you. There's no point in having this meeting. I know exactly who you are and I know what you do. So there's no problem here. And I said, Coach, I was invited here to have lunch. I plan on having lunch. (laughs) (laughs) So, look, Patino came in. I mean, we all know the background. He signed a big deal with the Celtics. Uh, It seemed that he was going to get Tim Duncan in the draft. It didn't work out. He wound up with Chauncey Billups and Ron Mercer in the first round. Uh, so, uh, I mean, I always had this feeling about Rick. Great college coach, but tried to win the NBA championship with the same players and the same schemes that he won when he was at, uh, at Kentucky. Well, remember, he had been in the NBA as an assistant with the Knicks. Right. And he coached the Knicks. Right. And, and, and had a degree of success in a league that had changed in the ensuing years. And and uh, he, he wasn't uh, keeping up uh, in tune with it. You're right. When his first movie came in, and make uh, you know, he, of course he drafted it as one of his own players, Ron Mercer. Uh, he had three, went up with three and six, and and, and uh, <clears throat> Chauncey Phillips and Ron Mercer. He uh, uh, definitely uh, he picked up Travis Knight, you know, and uh, he he got rid of some people that he would have he could have used because he didn't even he just and namely Rick Fox was one and, and uh, so uh, he definitely did not it, did, it was a bad everything was bad but what did him in Howard was was his not the coach Rick Pitino of course was the general manager he, had, he was the, he had all the power it was Rick Pitino the general manager who did it and Rick Pitino the coach right he, his, he had a strange he did not have a particular eye for talent and, and at, that, at all 
and and as you just alluded to, he did not have a good eye for talent, and he gravitated towards people that he knew, and um, it didn't work out. And of course, he, he alienated the, the public by usurping Red Auerbach's president title. That, that right. did not go over well with the public at all. And and in terms of summing up his entire uh, tenure with the Celtics. Uh, I think he would prefer that it be expunged from his resume. <laughs> I, he, he pretends that it never happened. I mean it. I'm not. This is not a, a, a facetious remark. Uh, he, he would rather that anybody forget that he ever came back to Boston. Of course, and he famously quit on the road and said he would be back for a press conference, which we're still waiting to have. That morning <clears throat> that he coached his last game in Detroit, as I remember, was on the road, and I'm down in the gym on the treadmill, and Rick walks in, and takes the treadmill next to me, and we started talking. Nobody else was there. And uh, is it true you're gonna you're going to quit? He goes, yes. Uh, I said, when? He goes, probably after the game tonight. I said, uh, okay. Does anybody know this? He goes, no, probably not. And I wish you wouldn't say anything. And I said, I never betrayed a secret in my life, so I'm not gonna I'm not gonna start now. But in, to add to what you just said. Um, I remember we had a game on the road, and uh, John Connor, uh, you know, who worked for Rick, yep. came to me courtside before the game. He said, Coach wants to see you. And I said, really? So I went down to the locker room, and I said, you're looking for me? He goes, yeah. Uh, I need." Uh, he closed the door, and he goes, you know Kenny Anderson pretty well, right? I said, yes. Um, I'm thinking about making a move. I said, I understand. He, there was rumor that he was going to trade Chauncey Billups, and his son Richard said, if you trade him, uh, I'm moving out of the house. <laughs> and, so, and, uh, and then Rick turned to his wife and said, can we still have children? But uh, uh, I said to Rick, I said, uh, I said, I know Kenny very well. He's a great kid. There's not a finer kid than he is, but I would not make a move. He goes, why not? I said, because he's an old 30. And uh, he's been in the league since he's 18 years old, uh, and I, I just wouldn't make that move. But that you're asking me my opinion, I'm telling you my opinion. Well, he didn't listen to me, obviously, and, and he went and made the move anyway, sent Chauncey to Toronto. Tony Batie came, I think, as part of the deal. Uh, and then there was the other time when uh, uh, he said something. He, said, he made some remark about, oh, I know what it was. He said, some, he says, one of my coach's wives complained about you. And I said, really? Who? He goes, Jim O'Brien's wife. I said, about what? What happened was we're doing, we had a game in Cleveland. And Ron Mercer came down on a one-on-three. And he put up an ill-advised shot. And I said to Max, um, I don't know about that shot. Uh, I don't know that Mercer would pass the salt at Thanksgiving dinner. Well... Jim O'Brien's wife complained to Rick about that. So I said to, I said to Rick, I said, well, uh, are you angry at me for that? And he goes, um, I would prefer you had said it a different way, but I never criticized announcers. You do your job. You're, you do a good job for us. Uh, but I might want to phrase it a different way. I said, well, here's the bigger question. Am I right? He goes, no, you're right. <laughs> Don't do that again. <laughs> <laughs> He was, he was, you know what, uh, I, he was, he's a very, uh, everybody liked Rick and so on. And, but having said that, probably one of your favorite people in the Boston Celtic organization has got to be Red Auerbach. Uh, well, there's no, no, how could you, you know, you, um, Red, it was just, a, it was, you know, just so much fun to, to get to know the great Red Auerbach, of course, you know, and, 
and you know we we had one little moment, but one little and he, that that wasn't much, and the rest of it all those years was fantastic. And you know, just he's Red Auerbach. It was really only one. He's the ultimate pioneer in the lake. You know, from day one in nineteen forty-six. No, there's no question. So I get we're at practice. Um, uh, uh, one day, and I went to all the practices, and I'm sitting in the stands, and Red walks in, and I walked over to Red, and I said, would you mind, can we do an interview? And he goes, sure. We sat down, we started doing an interview, and I said, correct this fact of fiction. Did you turn the heat up in the visitor's locker room? <laughs> he says, he says, who told you that? And I said, come on, Red, it's all over. Everybody knows you for that. He goes, ah, they're just a bunch of whiners. <laughs> Right, <laughs> and and people, you know, that's a, one of the great myths. And he, I think he, it's like, you know, hey, let the people think that that it, that, that was nonsense. And, and the Celtics were tenants, whatever. And their 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 locker room wasn't exactly a palace, as you well know. Sure. And uh, you know, and especially in the fifties, they they literally hung their clothes up on hooks. And and uh, so anyway, um, oh, he like, you know, he like, he, he he actually could be very playful, you know, yeah. Well, he, um, uh, you know, during the glory years of the Celtics, you know, Red, Red was just smarter than everybody. I mean, you know, yep. from every move he made was a right. I mean, <laughs> I mean, just you can go down the list. You know it better than I do, quicker than I do. But here we are now in 2022, and we, we just come off the Patriot dynasty. Bill Belichick and Tom Brady uh, hooked at the at the hips. Uh, they did everything. They won championships. They set records. Uh, so is it fair to say that the Patriots are now the team that first people mention when it comes to New England, or is it still the Celtics? No, no, it's the Patriots. Time, it's the Patriots, and and uh, you know the thing was they had to pass the Red Sox. The Red Sox were the gold standard of you know of, of sports talk dominance for, for the most part of the well, all 20th century and, and the beginning. And 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 this is an interesting thing because the Red Sox have won four times since then, 2004. But uh, the town, uh, you know, they're one at uh, best one A, if not two. The Patriots are one, and then the Red Sox are two, and the, the Celtics and Bruins fight it out depending on who's hotter at the moment. And you know, uh, but the outside world, yeah, uh, the Celtics are uh, the, the history uh, matters uh, to people, of course. But they're, they're the Patriots are the, they're, they're the currency. That's what people think about when they think of New England, and Boston now. Well, when Belichick was an assistant with the Jets, I was doing the Jet games when Parcells was the coach, and I'm in the Jets' office, and Steve Martin, who was the general manager, showed me this napkin. And it was the famous napkin that Belichick said, I, I don't want to coach the NJ. Well, you know you know that what I'm talking about. I don't want to be the HC or the NYJ. Exactly. Yeah. And I saw this napkin, and I'm thinking, I thought, wow, this is something. <laughs> and then, of course, Parcells, uh, you know, and there's no question about the, the rift between he and, and Robert Kraft, but... Having said that, it extended to his son, Jonathan. I mean, I'm, I'm calling the Patriots' uh, uh, Super Bowl win over uh, St. Louis, and I see Kraft on the field before the game. He goes, what do you think? I said, I like your chances to win. He goes, really? I said, no, really. I had a long discussion with Charlie Weiss, and I believe what he says, and I think you got a chance to win the game. So he goes, well, you're invited to – you're staying in the same hotel with us. I said, right. He says, you're invited to our post-game uh, party. I said, win or lose? He goes, win or lose. They win the game. I go up to the party with my wife, and Jonathan greets me at the door. He says, you can't come here. I said, what? He goes, well, you're friendly with Parcells. So you can't come here. I said, your father invited me. 
All the, and Robert comes up and he goes, what's the problem? He goes, well, I don't want him in here. He's a page, he's, he's a poor sales guy. He says, I invited him. Step aside. Whoa. <laughs> I said, good for you. <laughs> and good for uh, me because it was a good party. <laughs> God. Oh, I love it. Yeah, well, there was a lot of palace intrigue in those days. I mean, I, I, that whole eeriness, that, that Super Bowl in New Orleans, when Parcells, we knew he was, you know, something was going on, you know, and, and uh, uh, it, it was the weirdest uh, you know, and thing. And, you know, and after that game, he didn't even fly back with the team, you know, the whole thing. But that, that was a, it was a strange week, I can tell you that. Was, we knew something was going on, you know, somehow. Well, the, the history of, of Boston sports, and everybody talks about the, the, the rivalry, the bitterness between New York fans and Boston fans, and vice versa. I mean, does it go all the way back to Babe Ruth, or is, it, or is, it not, or is, is that over bone? No, well, uh, the actual Red Sox-Yankees thing, uh, when, after Ruth got uh, traded, sold to the, to the Yankees, he wasn't traded, he was sold, uh, the Red Sox had a they, – they, they, there was no rivalry because – well, also, he wasn't the only Red Sox player that they got. They also got uh, Jumpin' Joe Dugan. They got uh, Herb Pinnock. Uh, they, they, they stripped the, – basically stripped the team. The, the owner did Harry Frazee. The Red Sox stunk, totally and completely stunk for the next 13 years. There was no rivalry because the Red Sox were not – they, they finished last perennially or next to last. And it wasn't until Tom Yawkey bought the team in 1933 and started spending money on the team that they – the rivalry started in 1938 um, and with a fight – uh, uh, had a Yankee Stadium, and the Red Sox were starting to get pretty good again, and uh, that's when the River rivalry started in 1938. It really didn't take root during the root era, the root era because the Yankees, and the Red Sox were hopeless anyway. There was no rivalry. You can have, you got to have some competition to have a rivalry. No question about it. Before I let you go, uh, a couple of fine memories stand out. Um, getting to know Bob Cousy was one, uh, and his late okay. wife. Uh, she was terrific. My wife and I got along very well with her. Uh, Bill Russell got a chance to, to talk to him. Uh, never forgot that. Danny Ainge, I thought he did a great job, and now he's in Utah. And it'll be interesting to see what he does with um, Donovan Mitchell and, and Rudy Gobert. If he keeps them both, trades them both, trades one, not the other. What do you think? Uh, I don't know. That's a, that's his, that is the number, the number big thing on his plate is, is uh, you know, they got to figure out what's going on. And because he's a coach now. I, I think that certainly shocked the outside world that we didn't know that uh, Quinn Snyder was preparing to, to leave at, at, at that young age and so forth. And, and, and you know, the team's been reasonably successful. They've been a little frustrated at, at times, but, you know, it hasn't been a bad team. Anyway, that's the number one thing. Got to get a coach. But, yeah, that, that's a, it's a, you know, that Gobert and Mitchell thing has got to be resolved in, in one way or the other. I, I, I'm going to bet they'll – do the best to keep them together and not trade Mitchell, but and I don't think you're going to trade Gobert at all. So, but uh, that is number one task after finding a coach. Celtics had Kyrie Irving. Max said they they had a party when he left, uh, and he still creates a lot of chaos. Uh, do you think he picks up the option? What do you think? Oh, if you're asking me to get inside the head of the most unfathomable person <laughs> consequence in the history of the National Basketball Association, a person who I, my, my armchair psychologist belief from the, has been for several ever since he came here, that this is a guy who isn't as smart as he thinks he is and, and is searching for something in life and doesn't know what it is. And, and, and uh, it won't be to the team that, that invests in him. He will find a way to let you down. Now, is he a talented player? Yes. 
He's as talented getting to the hoop at his size as anybody I've ever seen, with the possible exception of Isaiah Thomas II, the, 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 the little one, not the Hall of Fame one, who's amazing getting to the hoop. But this guy is extraordinarily talented, but, you know, he's, he's who he is, and complicated human being, and you don't want him on your team. Agreed. I think that's 100% correct, at least the way I look at it. Bob, yeah. always great talking to you. Tremendous uh, writer. I always never forgot the fact that you and Will McDonough, when I first came to Boston, you welcomed me with open arms. I never forgot that. Well, that's nice. It was nice to have you around, too. We're glad you were a part of it. And it's always good to talk to you. Don't lose the number. Thanks, Bob. Enjoy Maine while you're at it, all right? I shall. Okay. <laughs> Bye, Howard. Bye. Bye-bye. He's Bob Ryan, outstanding columnist, long time for the Boston Globe. There's legends in Boston. Cousy, Russell, all of that. Belichick, Brady, all of that. Yastrzemski, Ted Williams, Bob Ryan of the Boston Globe. No question about it. This is a guy that um, really made a name for himself in Boston. No doubt about it. I'm gonna talk now to the voice of the Golden State Warriors. He is Tim Roy. Who's going to join me now? We'll talk a little finals. Hopefully. How are David? Hello, Tim Roy. How are you, sir? I am good. How are you doing? So what are you doing now? You got nothing to do? You're sitting around getting in your wife's way? What are you doing? Well, I'm, I'm really good at that. I'm <laughs> really good at that. Yeah. yeah that's, that's a, that's a, I'm like all NBA in that, in that regard. So, uh, yeah, no. And, and, uh, remember the, uh, I, think I told you the story about with uh, when I was just getting started in the NBA, and I asked Ralph Lawler, you know, what do you do in the off season? He goes, well, kind of took a deep breath. He goes, young man, I've been doing this a long time, and I'm getting really good at doing absolutely nothing. <laughs> so, so I'm I'm trying to follow in Ralph's footsteps. You know, to do that. So, well, a lot of legendary broadcasters still in the NBA. Just talked to the great Al McCoy the other day. Uh, never never miss an opportunity to talk to Al because he's. He's a wealth of stories. Absolutely, absolutely, yeah, and and um, you know, just to, to to blow anybody's mind. Think about Al McCoy. He was doing the Suns in the early seventies, and he's still doing it. It's an amazing, amazing run, and I don't think anybody will duplicate that again. That's just an incredible run that he's had right now. Well, they got to the finals last year. Most people thought they were going to get to the finals again this year against Milwaukee. Neither happened. Uh, the Golden State Warriors now off their third NBA uh, title. I lost you there. What, I, said that, the, I said Al has been his entire career, 50 years in the NBA, never been part of a championship Phoenix Suns team. A lot of people thought they were going to get back there this year. It didn't happen. But the Warriors now, three titles in the last six years. Uh, this is what's, what's sensational about that. Missed the playoffs the previous two years. Yeah, and, and, you know, worst record in the league two years. But Draymond Green had a very interesting thing, and, and he, he said at the beginning of the year, he said, nobody has proven that they can beat us when we're healthy and whole. And there is some truth in that. You know, they lost in, in 2019 to Toronto. They were banged up in that series. Um, you know, they were a little banged up in 2016. I'm not going to take anything away from what Cleveland did in that series. But but so I think Draymond's point was, hey, we're still we're still to be reckoned with here. We're not that old yet. And so uh, they came at it that way, got off to a great start. And, 
And then, you know, kind of when Draymond went out, right, when Clay came back, Draymond was hurt, and they kind of, like, stuttered a little bit there for a while. And in March, they kind of had a, a down period, but they kept getting better and better. And then when they got to the playoffs, they got to the playoffs, they were getting healthy. And then Gary Payton goes out. He comes back in the finals, makes a big difference. But they were reasonably healthy throughout the playoffs. And I think that was a huge key for them. And, you know, to win four and eight, you know, there's only a handful of teams have ever done that in any sport. And uh, it's an amazing, amazing ride and run we've been on. Tim, you know what surprised me is that in six games, all six games, were decided by 10 points or more. You don't usually see that in an NBA final series. Yeah, and I, I think a part of that was the fact that, that I think both teams are so good defensively that they can, and when they turn it up a little bit in like a fourth quarter or whatever, they can they can uh, really get to you. I mean, Boston, when, you know, in game one, they were just lights out in the fourth quarter. Nobody was beating them in that quarter. Um, and and I think that, you know, that's one reason why, but I just think that that you know, in, in in they were evenly matched for the most part, but I thought the Warriors were just a little deeper and a little bit better, and it was kind of a weird start to the series because I I was trying to figure out maybe I was looking at it wrong because uh, Boston had just beaten Miami and really if Jimmy Butler hits that three, then maybe Miami wins that game and and the Warriors are playing Miami in the finals, but the. Um, and, you know, I mean, Miami was banged up, and all of a sudden Boston and ESPN's got this power ranking, so they're 86%, you know, favored to win. And I'm going, I just don't see it that one-sided. And and I was a little surprised at that. But you know, as the series went on, I think, you know, it was it was shown that, you know, the Warriors were just, you know, the experience factor pulled in, pulled in and, you know, they had the, the right players to go against you know, uh, Tatum and Brown, even though those guys scored, they had to work really hard to get their points. And there were a lot of turnovers forced with the Warriors defense. And I thought that was the, the difference in the series. Most people were talking, Tim, about the Celtics defense, the Miami Heat defense. Not a lot was said about Golden State's defense, which proved to be the wild card in the finals. Their defense created many turnovers, a, a lot uh, uh, that were created by, uh, by Jason Tatum. Yeah, and, and, and who was on Jason Tatum? Andrew Wiggins. Wiggins, and, right. and 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 Tatum shot 50% on two-point shots in the first three rounds of the playoffs. In the NBA Finals, he shot 32% on twos in the in the NBA Finals, and that's because Andrew Wiggins was on him. I thought, I thought uh, people overlooked the Warriors' defense because it slipped a little bit with Draymond out. They still finished second in the league in defense with Draymond playing only 46 games. That should have told people something about the Warrior defense, but they kind of overlooked it. And especially when you put another guy like Gary Payton the second out there, now you've got another elite defender on the floor. Clay Thompson, even though he's lost maybe a step or so, he's still a very good defender. Steph Curry is a much better defender than he was six, seven years ago, and he's a lot stronger than he was six, seven years ago. And then you got Looney, who's always in the right place at the right time. And as a good defensive rebounder, which is part of your defense, um, yeah, it was it was I thought overlooked, a little underplayed going into the series, but I thought it was one of the keys to the series. You know, what's interesting to me was Game Five. Steph Curry scores 16 points, and the, and the Warriors win going away because uh, I mean, got a lot of help from a lot of people. Wiggins obviously, Poole contributed. 
obviously Clay Thompson. And if anybody was not thrilled for Clay Thompson, then you have no heart. Yeah, I mean, everybody kind of loves Clay, and he, um, you know, you saw him at the parade the other day. Clay does not get cheated on life. He does not. He's, <laughs> you know, uh, he he savors every moment. He knows how to celebrate. He knows how to uh, work hard. And you put those two together, and you've got Clay Thompson with that great sense of humor. Is, um, but yeah, they, they that to me was a real eye opener. If I was Boston, I was probably really discouraged after that game. You know, Stephen Curry did not make a three-point shot in that game, and they still lost. They weren't in the game in the you know in the final minutes, and um, that to me had to be really discouraging for them. And I, and and I really thought the Warriors did a great job in Game Six of surviving that first run. You know, when Boston came out ready to go, they just kind of the Warriors just kind of hung on there for a while, and all of a sudden, you know, you see by the end of the first quarter they had taken back some of the momentum. And that was it. You know, you knew at that point that if they got a lead, then the the reality of the end of the year, you know, came crashing down a little bit on Boston. And I thought that affected their play in the second half. Radio voice of the Golden State Warriors, Tim Roy. Steph Curry wins the finals MVP, 34 points in game six. Also won the Western finals MVP. I don't know how many times that's happened where one guy's won both. But, I mean, Curry's accomplished so much. Uh, it didn't hurt, by the way. His father was a pretty good shooter in his own right. Although Del Curry, uh, I, when I, I think I mentioned this to you once before. I'm on the court with him before the game and during shoot-around, and I said, are you the best shooter in the NBA? He goes, no. I said, well, who is? Reggie Miller, Mark Price, who? He goes, that guy's sitting over there, and he was pointing to Drazen, Drazen Petrovic. Oh, yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah. Yeah, and I was around Drazen all the time, and I, I, I never had higher regard for any player in the NBA than, than uh, Drazen Petrovic. And I'll never forget the night. We're all at a golf tournament at a cocktail hour afterwards when Chuck Daly was coaching the Nets. We're standing around the bar, and Chuck was there. Willis Reed was there. Uh, a number of guys were there. And the word came that Drazen was killed in a car accident. I mean, you could not imagine what that felt like hearing that story. Uh, it's, it's, just, it, it's still one of the... Uh, worst moments in the NBA because we not only lost a great guy, but we lost a, a guy who was going to be a superstar and had just started to, you know, raise eyebrows around the league, you know, with the way he was playing for the Nets. And he was going to, you know, he was going to make the, the Trailblazers rue the day that they traded him because um, that kid was a star. And uh, it's just too bad. You know, the, you talk about Dell, the, when I go to Toronto, they, the, when Steph really started to start to play well, the guys in Toronto were telling me that the joke when Dell was, you know, on on the Raptors, that the two best, you know, shooters in the building were up on the practice floor during the game, and that was Steph Curry and Seth Curry. They'd be up there <laughs> knocking down shots during their dad's games, and then they come down and watch the second half. But yeah, so so it's uh, shooting is is part of the the Curry family business, and you know they all can can knock it down. I got to ask you, where did the, why are the Warriors <laughs> called the Dubs? When did they start calling the dubs? Um, probably, um, I want to say maybe in the early 2000s when the Warriors went to a, uh, we used to call it the Flying W logo. It had uh, a W and then had little lightning bolts around it and stuff. They went to that logo. And, you know, W and, and the people up in Seattle have called University of Washington UW forever. And so I think they kind of stole that and just said, hey, they're the dubs. And 
kind of stuck and that's where it's been you know ever since but i think it started when they had that w logo steve kerr uh played for phil jackson played for greg popovich won a couple of titles won two <laughs> titles as a coach he's got what does he have nine championship rings now nine championship rings and 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 listen to this now the the warriors last year were two games above 500 when they lost in the, the play-in tournament the year before they had the worst record in the league and during that season i looked it up that was only the second losing season that steve kerr's ever been associated with hmm. he had he was on a team in cleveland that that won like 30 something games 38 games maybe and every other team he's been on has had a winning record. And he says he hangs around the right guys, but, you know, he's just a winner. He's just been, always been a winner. He's a winner in, in college at the University of Arizona. He was right. a winner in the pros, and he's a winner as a coach. He just he gets people to, to be better around him because of the guy that he is. And, and that's, that, to me, is one of his keys to his success. Golden State Warriors play-by-play voice Tim Roy. Uh, so now the question where do the Warriors go from here? Yesterday I saw the Las Vegas has them the favorite to win it again next year. Where are the Warriors now cap-wise? Where are they free agent-wise? Educate me a little bit. Well, I think that they've got a couple of guys who are on expiring contracts and Otto Porter Jr., Nemanja Bielitsa, I think Gary Payton the second as well. Uh, got a double-check loony status. I think there's still a club option there. I'm not sure, but I'll look at that. But um, but the other part about this is that they, you could look at their team, the team they played in the playoffs. They've already added three guys. And by that, I mean, Wiseman's going to hit the floor at some point this year. And then you've got Kaminga and Moody who will be in their second year. So I think part of the plan is that those guys will play big, much bigger roles than what they have this year and be hopefully part of the rotation for next year, at least two of them. And so uh, I think in that regard, they've already added a couple of guys, but they do have a couple of things. I think they'd like to get a veteran uh, backup point guard, maybe on a veteran minimum, and maybe maybe just another big for insurance purposes. But um, but I think they're 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 pretty good on wings. Andre Iguodala is going to retire. He's he's his career will be over. Um, I, I'd be shocked if the Warriors don't have him in some sort of role next year, maybe as a consultant to come in and work with their young players now and then. Because he's so good at that, so uh, so I think they're they're going to try to um, to keep this going with the influx of their young talent, as, as and so hopefully that these players will be, you know, getting better and taking bigger roles as the core, you know, starts to slow down a little bit. Well, Steph's thirty three, is that right? Yep. And Draymond's thirty one. Those are the only two guys that I'm aware of outside of Iguodala. Uh, people would even consider, you know, start counting the amount of years they have left. Look, Steph Curry plays a kind of a game. Uh, Chris Paul is, is, what, 36? I could see Curry playing at least another three years. Oh, absolutely. I, I think I think Curry will play to at least 38 or 39. Really? I, I really believe that. Because because the fact that, that you know, think about it, but even when, you know, when we first got to the NBA, when a guy was 35, he was about done. He was like, you know, not playing a lot of minutes but now they're you know they're basically 365 days of the year working on their bodies so um so i believe that that this you know then the fact that there's so much attention paid 
to their muscles and to how they react to different stress loads that I think, you know, players in the NBA will play longer than ever before. And we're seeing it everywhere. You know, Tom Brady's still an NFL quarterback, for God's sakes. Um, so I, I think, you know, father time catches up with everybody. It's undefeated. But I think the players are finding ways to last a little bit longer in that fight than they were 20 years ago. I think during this offseason coming up, uh, we're going to hear a lot of conversation. Well, we're going to hear conversation in the next few days about Kyrie Irving because he's got to either pick up his option on the 29th of June or not. And I don't know how that's going to work out. Uh, but uh, what happens to Donovan Mitchell in Utah, Rudy Gobert in Utah? A lot of conversations going to go on during the offseason. What would surprise you most? Um, boy, that's a that's a good question. Um, I, I'd be surprised if if you know if if they say like the Lakers find a taker for Westbrook. <laughs> I think the the. The, the one thing that surprised me is Utah. I thought, I thought they still had enough there to make another run with them, but you know Quinn Snyder stepped aside and maybe he felt his voice wasn't being heard enough, you know, as it was maybe a few years ago. So you know the Utah is going to be doing something, but you know you last long enough, and, and I've had, I've been blessed to do so. Nothing really shocks you anymore in the you know in this league. You know you've right. seen everything. I mean. You know, Will Chamberlain got traded a couple of times in this league. <laughs> Kareem Abdul-Jabbar got traded. Uh, you know, so Michael Jordan ended up on another team. You never thought that was going to happen. So nothing really shocks me anymore. But I will say this. The NBA has really done, um, and the people who cover the NBA, they do a great job in the offseason now. And there's no really, there's very few really dead times, maybe a couple of weeks in August. But but boy, the the NBA always comes up with player movement because of the fact that the teams now are, you know, more than ever willing to deal and and to move assets, whether it be draft picks or players. So the NBA, you know, kind of wins the off season. Uh, I think a lot of times because of of you know the kind of moves that are made. You know, the kind of players that go from team to team. Tim, uh, you said something that that triggered an idea uh, thought. Uh, uh, you said that Quinn Snyder, maybe they kind of tuned him out a little bit. I remember having a conversation with Chuck Daly when I was doing the Nets and he was the coach. And I said, uh, how has your position changed? He said, when I first got into coaching, you, you know, you could assume that you're going to coach at least 10 years. Uh, but now it's probably closer to five or even four because players have a shorter span where they are tuning you in as opposed to tuning you out. And this is Chuck Daly going back. To, my goodness, I'm going back uh, 2001 when he said that. I couldn't. I, I I kept recalling that and thinking, man, daily. I learned more from that guy than oh, I yeah. ever thought I knew about the NBA. I, I interviewed him once and I said, "What do you think your biggest strength is as a coach?" And he said that it was selective hearing. <laughs> <laughs> oh, he you, know, he you know, as you remember, he coached the Dream Team. And yes. I said, what was the top? I said, everybody said, all Daly's got to do is roll the ball out and, and, and step away and just stay out of the way. Now, and you start to consider now who was on that dream team, every superstar you ever heard of, which makes it, it's not easier. It's harder because you got to satisfy all those egos. Yeah. You know what I thought? I thought he, he really handled it perfectly. And, um, I remember he, um, they brought in those college kids that, for that, that scrimmage. And 
and Chuck Daly knew those guys weren't ready, you know, and he didn't really have them ready, but he wanted them to, you know, be in a competitive situation where the thought may be, hey, we may lose this game, right? So they, the college kids come in and play great against the, the dream team, and it was a really great wake-up call for those guys, and, yep. and I think they kind of came into focus after that. And I think I think Chuck did that deliberately to get their attention to say, hey, you know what, you guys think you, you know you know you're the best team in the world, but the best team in the world can still lose. So um, so I thought I thought he handled it perfectly. I thought he was the gr- the perfect guy to to run that that group, and and you know we'll never see anything like that again. We had uh, a shoot around when the when the Nets played host to the Miami Heat when they had Glenn Rice and. Chuck at the shoot-around, I was like you, go to all the shoot-arounds, and that's where you really kind of get a feel for the team. And Chuck kept saying to Chris Morris, don't let Glenn Rice get off early. He said it five times. Don't let Glenn. Right. Then I'm, my broadcast position is adjacent to the Nets bench. Before he sends him out on the floor for the game, he says to Chris Morris, don't let Glenn Rice get off early. First possession, Glenn Rice, wide open, three, bang. Second possession, Glenn Rice, wide open for three, bang. Chuck calls a timeout. 50 seconds into the game. And as he's walking past our broadcast position, he looks at me and he goes, don't let Glenn Rice get off early. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so, yeah, it's, it's so funny. The, um, you know, the, the, a lot of players, they, they, you know, they tend to, to not pay attention to those little details. And those little details are, are – what really separate um, teams from success and failure? You know, the, the Warriors had, you know, they they did a great job in their early playoff round of the coaching staff did of, of selecting certain players in the other team and saying, okay, we're you know we know you know when they play you know uh, uh, Dallas, Luka Doncic is going to score. When they play you know Jokic is going to score, but we're not going to let you know the the shooters for Denver in the perimeter get going. And so the, the Warriors were were drilled on that over and over again. This guy, when this guy's here, you're you got him. You're that's your responsibility. Don't worry about Jokic. Draymond will have him, and that kind of thing. And they really targeted guys that that you know who could hurt them in situations, and took that away from the other team for the most part. And those little details, I think, really separate you know uh, good teams from great teams from good teams and good teams from bad teams. And when you when you've got guys buying into those details, when you've got them paying attention to those little things, uh, then then I think that's a that's a huge deal. It's harder to do in the regular season, as you know, because because the games come so quickly. You know, you're going to miss a couple of details, and there's going to be nights where you know the whole team is on e mentally. You know, and we can see those. You know, every you know the old joke was if you look at the score and it didn't look right. You know, look at the look at the schedule of the team that the, that got beat badly, and you can see why they they lost. They were tired. You're to, mentally tired, and so um, so it's hard to do in the regular season, but it's so important in the playoff series because you can really have an impact with those little details. Well, uh, one of my relatives, my cousin Laney, is a huge Golden State Warrior fan. So you guys win the championship. She quickly sends me a text. Yay, Dubs! <laughs> yeah, nice, nice. <laughs> so you made somebody happy. Uh, you know, you got a fan. Uh, she now lives in L.A., but she uh, is from originally from Oakland. So she was a big Warrior fan for a long time. Uh, enjoy your time off, my man. You stay safe. You too, Howard. You have a, a good uh, a good summer, and I hope to talk to you soon. You got it. He is All Tim right. Roy, the voice 
of the Golden State Warriors. What a year, huh? What a year. After two years of not making the playoffs. <laughs> in one of those two years, they had the worst record in the league. Which tells you, number one, now the value of Klay Thompson. Draymond Green was injured a lot. Steph Curry was the one constant, but even he was banged up a little bit. That's the nature of the NBA. You're going to miss games. But when your bench is as deep as the Warriors' bench is, you have a lot to worry about. Not a lot to worry about. They deserve the championship. Most people that know me know that I'm a Braves fan, and the Braves lost to the Giants yesterday, 12-11, to 11, and a defensive nail-biter. <laughs> Six lead changes in the game. But congratulations to the Warriors. They deserve it. You folks stay safe. Thanks for being a part of Howard David Live. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.